Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Hi everyone, welcome to this latest episode of EDGE. It's my fabulous and uh, great pleasure to introduce Bob Hastings, a distinguished career in law enforcement uh, from both policing to corrections in the state of Victoria and now a wonderful resident of the state of Queensland. He sits on the parole board uh, of Queensland as a community member. So his interest and uh, contribution continues throughout a career that uh, has had considerable impact in some of the ways we do policing, etc. Also involved uh, vicariously or directly in the infamous incident, Barwon Prison as the commissariat of prisons with uh, the Carl Williams incident. So welcome, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Good to be here with you. Tell me about the young um, Bob Hastings growing up in the wonderful South Gippsland and Victoria farm boy and growing up down there. So what was that like? Yeah, and look, uh, it was a good life, Stephen, I think, being a country boy. We, uh, we had a farm of about 300-odd acres. It was mainly milking cows and some beef cattle and those sorts of things. I was on it with mum and dad. We had an extended family. I had my grandmother and my father's unmarried brother lived with us. And uh, I had a brother and two sisters. So we're all squeezed into this tiny little house stuck on a hill down in Gippsland with uh, not much money and not much else, mate. But uh, you certainly learnt the value of hard work. I think I was driving a tractor by about eight years of age and uh, feeding cows and doing all those things that you do growing up on a farm. And you actually learnt a whole lot of skills around how to build things. Both Dad and my uh, uncle were very, uh, very good at constructing buildings and things like that. So you learned all that stuff. And you had a great community surrounding you, played sport, did all of those things that kids of my generation did. We never had electricity until 1965, I think it was. We had an old generator and we had a kerosene refrigerator. And we often used the old Coolgardie safe with the meat slung under a tree somewhere. Yeah. It was pretty basic, Stephen. But look, it was a great, a great way to cut your teeth, if you like, into, into the world. So that formation, the early years in terms of hard work, value of family, the, the presence of family and the intersection of uh, the value of our community and giving community. Was it any accident you went to become a police cadet? Well, it was a little bit. I liked doing the tractor work on the farm, but I didn't like the cow stuff much. I would drive a tractor for hours. I just loved it out there doing that. But my uncle was a senior sergeant in Victoria Police, and he used to come up from Melbourne and visit us. And he always impressed me as a, a role model. He was a very kind, gentle man and someone different to what I knew. And I suppose I always think one of the catalysts, Steve, for going there a little bit apart from him, one day he gave me a button off his shirt, a silver police button on it, and he gave it to me. 
that's one of those things as a kid I just kept and kept and kept. And when I left school, uh, I applied to join the police cadets. And, and, and I suppose he was the motivating factor behind my desire to do all of that. And that, that worked its way through. I was lucky that the police force had expanded the numbers they were taking in terms of the cadet program. Um, I think the year I joined, they took about 200 of us. Uh, and, and that was the start of it. And the sort of farming became something I did in, in my younger years. And, and I moved to Melbourne and my whole country life changed. I, I pretty much lived in the city for the rest of my life. I didn't go back to the country, only to visit, really. So the importance of a significant other role model in your life, um, as we know, that's uh, significant. You described your uncle as kind and a gentle man, and uh, you strike me as somebody, and we've had a great friendship, that embodies those particular characteristics. How does that show up in uh, a policeman's life in terms of being professional with a disposition for kindness, to uh, mm. man, etc.? Sometimes police are seen to be. Yeah. Oh, look, it's, um, it's hard. I, you know, in terms of I, I try to live with a personal value framework, if you like, and, and, and from a young age, uh, and I continue to try and hold myself accountable to it in everything I do. To me, integrity and, and, and honesty are just critical to what you do. I mean, you, you know, if you haven't got those things, particularly in a policing career, then you haven't got much going for you about uh, much else. Accountability. Hold yourself accountable for what, what you want to do. Uh, and then you've got to show some, from time to time, we, we all do, you've got to show some courage. And I don't mean just physical courage. You've got to take, take some tough decisions, make some choices in your life that lead you down different paths. And then when you do that, commit it to action. And then the next bit is to display some resilience. You know, life's tough. And you have to occasionally pick yourself up off the ground and, and try again. And I can always remember one of my old bosses saying, Bob, you've got to keep pushing yourself and trying because a lot of people never reach their full potential because they give up just as the door's about to open. They, 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 they've had enough and they say, look, I, I just can't do this again. But probably the next time they did it, they may succeed. Who knows? But it's that part of driving yourself forward and picking yourself up all the time. And Policing those do, 70 to 80% of it is just interacting with the community day to day. The enforcement part's probably about 20%, 30% at best. So you've got to treat people in the way you'd like to be treated yourself and, and your family. And that's what I try to do, be fair, be consistent and, and uh, occasionally test yourself as well. You must have um, seen some horrific things in your career. Um, obviously, you went general policing and there's a great story about your specialism in terms of traffic, um, law enforcement, drug uh, testing, but is there one sort of knower, I call it, that or that incident you still remember and uh, can ever absolutely forget? It might be numb, but something that you always can recall. I suppose in terms of when I was operational as a younger fellow, I mean, I was in the major collision, which was really, it was responsible for investigating fatal and serious crashes across the state. And you're on call 24 hours a day and you, and you didn't know when the phone was going to ring at night or you're going to be dragged out of bed at night. And then ultimately you, you go to scenes that are fairly horrific. 
where people have lost their lives or they've been badly injured. And there was one occasion there where a young boy had been killed by a hit-run driver. He's only about eight or nine. And the other part of that, you had to go down to the coroner's court and because of the evidence required, you had to remove clothing from the body and all that sort of stuff and bag it up. But, you know, it's just, I always remind myself, you know, you just look at that young face lying there just taken tragically and it hits you and you live with it. But in terms of your job, you've got to continually remain objective about what you're trying to achieve because if you let your emotions get tied up in it, then you lose your perspective on what's going on. But they're the sort of things, I think, along the way that come flashback from time to time as you think about life a little bit and uh, what's going on around you. But normally, I would say, you know, I'd reckon 90% of my interactions with the community over that time were pretty positive. You do see the worst of some people, but you do see the best of, of some people as well in different episodes that occur around you. Bob, um, that sort of a segue to uh, quite a significant impact in terms of policy, community standards, expectation in terms of drug testing, driver saliva testing, uh, speed reduction strategies that have been the forerunner of much change in terms of enforcement or policing in these particular areas. Um, you were at the leadership helm of those particular initiatives. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about that? And yeah, it's uh, very impressive, the public policy. I suppose the first one, uh, Stephen, was trying to reduce speed across the, the, the travelling speed of uh, vehicles across the state. I went out publicly and I said, look, there's going to be no leeway on speeding that 60 will be 60 and 70 will be 70 and we will apply that daily and also through our mobile camera uh, program red light cameras and all the rest of it and that got a heck of a lot of backlash in the public uh, not so much the public but in the media and also certain politicians weren't weren't happy with all of that but at the end of the day, it was all about trying to save lives and uh, stop people injuring themselves. And we knew that f through the research that uh, through the Monash University Accident Research Centre in Melbourne, which is highly renowned worldwide, we knew if we could lower the speed, then we would save X number of lives over a given year and given period. By lowering the speed, your top end speed also comes back if you understand. It's almost counterintuitive mm. to some degree, mm. but, but that's what happens. Anyway, I rode that out and it was tough you may remember and I think he's still on radio uh, Neil Mitchell who I got to know quite well on 3AW well Neil and I had some good discussions around things over over time but I, I did go down and I spoke to Neil about what we were trying to do because he had quite a powerful listening audience to to get to and explain to him the, the rationale for doing it and and he was he was fairly supportive of all of that so and so much so that I ended up doing a monthly spot on his show about road safety. So we worked together a little bit around trying to do all of that. So that was a bit of a, I think it was a bit of a, a first for Australia in some ways. Um, I, I think other jurisdictions have done their own thing, but pretty much we, we all got to the same place. On the other part, we led the uh, random roadside saliva testing for drugs. This was a, a big initiative. Up until then, it had been pretty much urine-based testing. And when we went out with this one, of course, we had pushback from the, the, the industry that did the urine-based testing because they said this stuff won't work. The true test is, is urine. 
and neuron does work, but we needed something that was more flexible on the road that we could use immediately to test these people. And, and the use of drugs, as you know, and people probably know, has grown considerably in, our, in the community over time as well. I think in my days as a young copper, it was sort of cannabis was about as good as it got, but now it's a mix of, mix of everything, um, mm. you name it. So we, we went out with that. We had government support. We had the Vic Roads uh, and uh, the Transport Accident Commission in Victoria. We all were on board about what this was about. Sadly, on day one, <laughs> I think the second one that we uh, driver that we stopped came up with a uh, positive. And then that subsequently turned out to be a false positive. So the whole program on day one mm. was potentially put at risk. Consequently, I then had government all over me saying, this is not working, Bob. Uh, this is Politically, this is becoming uncomfortable now uh, because of the publicity around it. The, the system seems to, to fail. Anyway, I, I went back and I sat down with my team and I said, we've got to hang in here because if we don't do this now, there will be, not be the political will to do it again because it, it hurts politically. So we did our training. We went through all the sample packs to make sure that they were right, they weren't contaminated. I told them, the, the, the police on the road, to buddy up. So instead of one of them doing it, because holding the device it sometimes was a little, you had to be careful. So there were two of them. And I said, we've got to stay on this. And um, anyway, it worked its way through. We didn't have any more. And, of course, the program then, then took off. And surprisingly, some of the politicians that were against it at that time actually came down, sat down with me and wanted to be briefed about how it worked and what, what it was about, which was good. I mean, at least they were getting on board and supporting the process. But that was pretty much a world first in terms of doing all of this. But I, the other thing was I knew it was important because the other jurisdictions around of states around Australia were watching how we went with it. And if we'd have failed, it wouldn't have made it any easier for them as well. So that's, that's been up and running now, Steve, for years. But it was a sort of one of those <laughs> – I talked about making some courageous – decisions in, in, in your life um, and, and what the impact is downstream, I did. Uh, and you sit there worrying about it, saying, good God, I hope this, I hope this actually works through because we're, we're potentially going to lose a program that I thought was going to be valuable to the community in terms of road safety. And it did. So the outcome was great. There was a few moments in there where you thought, well, why, why am I doing all of this? But that's what you did in your job. Bob, that's an incredible story. There's a lot of thematics running through that, just incidentally. Mainstream policing today, I was just looking at the paper a couple of weeks ago, you might have read the same article about the level of uh, incidents of drug-affected uh, drivers in, mm. uh, in the various regions. So I guess to the international, Bob, Fiji, Indonesia, that was a bit, uh, a bit interesting. Mm. Police training and uh, yeah. fairly sizable sort of group uh, mm. mm. there. Then uh, post your uh, career in um, government, um, working for Ausaid in terms of uh, Indonesian road safety. So reflections about those two? Oh, great. My three years in Fiji, Steve Ritteri, we were appointed as the technical. Victoria Police got the job as providing the technical support to the program in redeveloping the training for the Fiji Police. And I got the job as the team leader. And I had other Victoria Police members would come across over that period of time to, to run courses and develop courses. 
But it was an interesting, for me, again, it was one of those things where you push yourself out of your comfort zone a bit and you say, here I am. <laughs> I'm going into a country I've never been to before. I'm going to try and understand the cultures and the issues and, and how they do things. And I had a counterpart, wonderful man, um, who I'm still in contact with in, in Fiji. He, like me now, has moved on from that. But uh, it, it was fairly demanding. We had 88 milestones to meet over three years. And part of it, as Ozade called it, it was a, an institutional strengthening program to, to try and redevelop police training. And we, and we did. We, we built it from go to woe. We had links back to the higher education sector in the universities and the technical uh, parts. We had links to non-government organisations who could provide input into it. So we tried to broaden the base of police training, I suppose, or expose them to, to a broader base. Similarly with um, detective training, trying to get them to understand a little bit more about what it was because you've got to, to realise over there they have, they're pretty effective. I mean, the, it's not a big country and the grapevine's pretty good. I mean, they're all sort of <laughs> related or half related, so they know pretty much who did what to whom and um, mm. that was the way it worked. But, look, we did that. I always found you had to be a bit cognizant of, cognizant of moving them from where they were <laughs> over to something new and they sort of try and work out, well, what, what have we missed here we, we, in terms of moving from there to there? We haven't, we haven't, sometimes making mistakes, actually, you learn from them and, and you know, we're, we're not giving them that opportunity to, to fail a couple of times in how they were trying to progress. But look, that was the brief. It went for three years and it was absolutely fabulous time. Great people. I still love the place. Um, been back a couple of times since it gave me an opportunity as an individual to actually I thought grow again um, in terms of my broader experience and it gave me an opportunity to move outside for the first time outside my own organization and look at it from outside as well which you don't often get to do to reflect on your own organization and what it's doing or not doing so I came back came back into Victoria Police and then picked up again and then then went into other other aspects until finally I, I, I got to assistant commissioner in Victoria Police. But I, I enjoyed that. And then, and then when I, uh, another opportunity came up with, with Aussie to go to Indonesia to work on road safety with the Indonesian police, that was probably at the end of, end of my corrections period, really. Um, that, that opportunity came along and I was approached. So I went over there for another two, three years. And again, that was a whole new experience where you had a massive country of 250-odd million people. Recorded, there was about 40-odd thousand deaths on the road a year. You could probably say double that because they often didn't re report these things. Yeah. And about 300-odd thousand people badly injured. So you can understand how, how that was. But the, the focus there was really about trying to get them to start to enforce their laws because they didn't do that, and, and also how to conduct proper investigations into into crashes so so they were doing that part so that they were the two th thrusts of the program and that worked all right steve look i, I haven't been back since that finished I, I suspect sometimes when uh you know the donor leaves the country things can sometimes slip back again into the old ways and and, and uh, they, they look at other priorities so i don't know but again uh, personally great great time good people again and uh, gave me a chance to sort of wind out a professional career, I suppose, at the end of my policing and corrections 
period. You've had, obviously, a very distinguished career in public administration and police, and uh, we'll talk about Barwon and the Commissariat Prisons in a moment. But I'm intrigued by your perception. We often have a chat about things and about leadership and whatever, have a yarn. At the time of being inside your organisation and then going outside, from a commentator's point of view, from the felt experience and external lens, how did you see the culture of the place? I mean, reputedly there was a whole series of things happening around police departments. How did you see the culture that you were a part of or navigating through? They call it a police family and it is a family. From the day you joined, you're pretty much socialised into it. So, you, you know, that, that becomes your second family, if you like, and... Uh, in, in lots of ways, it's a very protective and supportive family. And, and you know, sometimes that can be an issue if, if you're not being objective and keeping your eyes open to what's going on about you a little bit. Things can happen and you should be mindful of those sorts of things. I, looking at it when I was out of the organisation, I suppose um, it was when I got back, I realised perhaps parts of the, uh, it was more interesting to me because would you believe when I got back, and I got back into the office. I went back to where I started from, which was a superintendent of our training development division at, at the police academy. And what absolutely shocked me was that the same files that I commented on three years ago were still coming back across my desk. They were just about another X centimetres thicker uh, than what they were, but, but had not been resolved one way or the other in terms of a decision. So you sort of think, well, what happened here? So I always found when you got those files for the first time, it was better to go to the back of the file because that's, that was the piece of paper that generated all this and what, what the request was about. You find when you go to the front end, it's been twisted so much and it's taken off at a different angle. It's become a whole different, whole different thing. So you've got to go back to, back to the start of the story. Um, so I suppose that's just bureaucracy and, uh, and police departments are hierarchical and they're, they're bureaucratic. And because when I was in Fiji, you were the leader. I was autonomous. I could make decisions like that, good or bad, but you could make decisions. But when you come back into that organisation, you've got a hierarchy. So yeah. you've got to convince the hierarchy or argue your case that this is a, an initiative we should undertake or this has merit. So it becomes a harder, harder thing to do. So, you know, that's, that was a frustration when I came back, the fact that I was running, running my own, if you like, running my own business, doing my own thing, meeting my own milestones, but then to come back into a huge organisation and once again, you just became a, a cog in the wheel that, uh, yeah. that sat there churning around. So, so that sort of stuff was... A bit hard. It probably took me six months to reacclimatise back into the into the bureaucratic process when I got back. And your various changes in your career, which in 2012 your approach to take on uh, corrections in Victoria, and uh, not the only thing that you're uh, as commissariat you you dealt with, but five months in um, the very public killing or murder, or how we describe it, of. Um, notorious alleged criminal Carl Williams by Matthew Johnson. How did you deal with that? Yes, corrections, I found a whole interesting change for me and my whole professional life had been at the, what I call the front end of the criminal justice system, <laughs> being police. Now I was at the back end. And when I was at the front end, 
once you'd been to court and the court had made a decision that people went to jail or whatever happened, you didn't worry about it too much. Your job was done. And then what happened then became someone else's problem. When you go to the back end, though, <laughs> it was my problem uh, when you take up that role. At the time I went there, we had 13 prisons, two of them privately run, and about 5,000 inmates uh, incarcerated in our, in our prisons at that particular time. So I had to quickly learn about what, what it was about. But what I found interesting was that I, a lot of the community didn't really care about it, although they had a huge commitment in, in corrections. I had a budget of about 600-odd million dollars, would you believe? So there was a fair commitment in, in taxpayer funds to run corrections. And I used to say to people, these people come back out. I mean, you know, the, the old community expression, lock them up, keep them in there, who cares? Just lock them up, lock them up. Well, it was costing at that time about $120,000 a year to keep someone locked up. If you could supervise them in the community properly, it was costing about $19 a day. So the cost equations were, were quite, quite significant. And the other part that quickly came to my attention was the fact that we were, I, I believe we were trying to find penal solutions for social problems. So these people had been through a whole lot of interventions before they got to prison. And then when they got to prison, there was an expectation that we would turn them around and they'd come out better people. Sometimes that happened. Sometimes it didn't happen. And, you know, um, and sometimes people in there were just bad. They would never change. So that's just a fact of life. So that was part of the, the learning curve a little bit for me and, 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 uh, and trying to get my head around what, what Corrections was trying to do. So to the Williams part, I suppose it, it started in a way, I was at that particular time, I got digress, I was, I, was, I was a bit of a flying enthusiast. I was flying light aircraft and doing sort of, and they had a thing called the Red Bull Air Race. You may have heard of it. It was out in Australia. It was held in Perth. And my wife and I went over for the Perth one. We got on the plane to come back on the Monday after the weekend, and I landed at Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne. And I, as you do, you turn your phone on. Well, it almost blew out of my hand. I had the Secretary of Justice. I had... Everyone, yep. where are you? What are you doing? Where are you? And, uh, and then, of course, my wife told me, Carl Williams has been killed. And I went, oh, good God. So from the time, as you know, you get up out of your aircraft seat and you reach up above you to get your pad. <laughs> <laughs> I started talking and I never stopped talking until I got back, back home and uh, it just went on. So anyway, I had everyone from the minister, from the secretary to whoever, and the Williams saga began. The next day, I went in to do the media conference, and I've policing you do media conferences on road safety, but and you everyone got you got to know the reporters and the, the journalists and, and people, and it was quite usually quite quite amicable and uh, a bit of a chat. This one, I remember walking into the room, and there must have been about fifty odd journo's there and television crews, and I thought, oh god, this is a bit. And uh, I don't know whether you've done it yourself, but. You, I didn't get a sense it was a sort of a welcoming uh, <laughs> meeting. <laughs> and, and I stood up and I thought, oh, this will do it. I'll, uh, I'll put them to ease. I'll, I'll give them a bit of a preamble into uh, what had happened and what had gone on. And I did. And after that, the first journalist, he put his hand up and he asked me a question. He said, oh, well, thanks for the history lesson, Commissioner. But have you, have you sacked anyone yet? <laughs> so that bounced the ball if you like, for that media conference. 
the thing was, I couldn't say much, Steve. The fact that the fact there was a, a homicide investigation with police, you know, a corrections investigation going, and, and all sorts of things. So you were pretty limited to what you could actually say it occurred. And at that stage, we were still trying to get our head around actually what had gone on anyway, as well. So after about 30 odd minutes being asked the same question, I, I finally sort of said to my people, we've got to get out of here because it's just going nowhere. So that was the, the, the media bit that started it. But then the other bit was then focusing on what, what happened and, and why it happened and, and the motivation for it happening. Because Carl Williams uh, was well known. Um, most people in Australia knew of, of Carl Williams and the gangland murders that had been ravaging Victoria for some time. And he was part of that. And the chap that killed him, they'd been living together for four or five months or more and were getting on quite well. So the fact that all of a sudden he decided to kill Williams was a bit, you know, why? What, what, what was the motivation? And, and I don't think anyone's really quite sure what, what the motivation was. I know the police did their investigation into it. For me, it was really then making us go back and revisit our, our processes around how we manage high security prisoners, the safety of high security prisoners, the, how do we improve our technology, how do we improve our intelligence systems. So it was a revisiting all of the, the work bit that, that went on around these people to, to, to not let it happen again. Now, you know, you could read public comment and people would say, Bob, who cares? <laughs> Good, he's gone. I said, yeah, okay, that, that might be a, a, a public sentiment to this, but the fact is I'm in charge of a maximum security prison, high-risk uh, security unit, and someone got killed. So that did not excuse what happened in the system that had to be worked its way through. I couldn't just write it off and say, well, that was good. He got, he got killed, so everyone's happy. Well, they were. I suppose, Steve, then I lived with that for three years as we worked through the, the issues around the Williams stuff. And I think I was probably interviewed, <laughs> I was probably interviewed more times in that three years by inquiries than I'd ever been in, you know, 30 odd more or 40 years of policing. And they weren't friendly interviews. They were, they were proper Q and A interviews. I, I felt yeah. like I was on uh, I was on trial uh, in terms of the way that went went through. But again, that's that's life. That's part of what you had to do. And the other part, and, and there are other media conferences because part of your job was actually defending the institution that you work for if it was under attack as well, and and justifying what what went on. And you were it. You were the talking head. You were the one that that had to get out there and do it. So it worked its way through, and you know I think everyone knows the outcome that uh, Johnson was convicted of the of the murder of Carl Williams, uh, and then other things moved moved on from there. But that was then probably the end of that came really at the end of my time at Corrections before I took off to Indonesia to do the other stuff. Well, a fascinating um, discussion and uh, coming in and out of uh, the boy from plan uh, <laughs> to today and. Uh, the start of a process, the, the core values that drive you. Second last, including, I guess, question. You've seen it all, I guess, and uh, I count you as a dear friend and a great mentor. 
and just looking over a period of time, what are the what are the things you're seeing now sitting on the parole board of Queensland, which brings its all those things into focus, it's the law, it's public sentiment, whatever. But what do you see has changed? What are the big issues in terms of that broader society trends that impact on the system, incarceration, recidivism? What do you see? Well, look, clearly, Stephen, society's become a lot more mobile. It's become a lot more technical. The things that I grew up as with a kid were pretty basic. I mean, we, we, we had a telephone that sat on a wall. We, we had a television set that was just starting. You know, I mean, and, and even as a young policeman uh, on the beat, we're pretty basic. And, 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 there, and there was still respect, I suppose, even respect between criminals and police at times in terms of they used to say you know, it was a fair cop. In other words, if you got them, they got them. But today, I don't know, there there's just seems to be an escalation of violence. I always used to work with, when you'd work with a policewoman helping you if you're out on patrol, that, that when you, if you went into a situation, be it a pub type incident or something, having the woman often was a calming effect because blokes, you know, in those days, they just, they didn't, they didn't touch women. But clearly today they do. I mean, you know, a, a woman will get a belt in the ear as quick as a, as quick as a male will. So you, you just got to see how, how things have changed. I look at today when I see young policemen and women out and about with the, the amount of technology they carried on them, you know, uh, telephones and cameras and taser and firearms. And, uh, you know, I went out with an old .32 pistol and a rubber baton that was pretty useless. <laughs> but it's sort of become so technical now. And, and, and I'm not sure, I, I don't know, I haven't interviewed any of the young guys these days to find out what, what life's like, but I suspect you know, it, it can be fairly demanding in a lot more ways than what it was for me. But I don't know, I, I just wish we had some more respect in the community for what we do to one another a little bit. It just seems to be a bit of a me, a me society. What's in it for me? But then again, um, you know, when, when Australia ha- has has its disasters, whether they be bushfires or floods and those sort sorts of things you actually see you actually see how the community does come together and, and really work together so it, there's still that there's still that underlying value of community out there but it's just a little bit more exposed now around social media and all these other things that impact on our world and, and i don't know i think our prisons are pretty full to be quite honest i think more people are going to, to prison than probably ever before we tend to be building more prisons anyway in terms of what's happening around various jurisdictions. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, to be quite honest. You know, I I sometimes think if you can manage people in the community, the ones that, you know, are manageable, then that's better because, you know, if they can get accommodation, they can get a job, they can get support, then that's a a better outcome for them and the community than having them locked up where they're just doing nothing really apart from perhaps some programs that they may, may come across. So it's, it's a different world. I don't know what to call it, Stephen. I haven't got really a word for it. I, I just think we've become a very fast-paced technologically world. But I, I struggle uh, as an older Australian now. If you, you know, you, we've all learned since COVID we're on Zoom and we're on Teams and we're on everything else and we're working from home. So we've all had to learn how to, how to do all of that as well. Whereas I still 
bit old-fashioned. I like to go into an office. I think the socialising in the, in the office environment is, is good. I, I, I would miss that if I had to sit at home and just work on a, on a computer screen all day because you actually – I enjoy the company of, of people. I enjoy the company of the office banter and those sorts of things. So it's a different world. I haven't got the answer, mate, I, I, to be quite, quite honest. I think for some younger people now, the comp- it's so, so much more of a complicated world than what I grew up in. And whilst they've got so many more opportunities and avenues to do things than what we had, I think their life is a lot more complex in terms of dealing with issues. On behalf of so many, Bob, I would just like to say two powerful words to you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the difference you've made in many locations to the broader sense of community. It's, it's embodied in you from a very young age. Um, the power, yeah, you had a great mentor. I often talk to leaders about being a leader. It's your responsibility to grow others, and I guess in your uncle he grew one, and your uh, legacy goes beyond uh, Victoria, nationally, Fiji, Indonesia. For many people like me, we are so very grateful. If many of us can embody the sense of humility, you are that kind, gentle man um, uh, who's humble but absolutely focused on purpose and uh, contributing and make a difference. Um, It's just uh, so refreshing but so wonderfully wise to listen to you reflect on things such as leadership, a personal credo, like having your own sense of accountability and those core values which drive you. Uh, So, Bob, thank you. Uh, Thank you for the wonderful work you continue to do on behalf of uh, the community with your work on the parole board and just by having those conversations and being relationships with so many. And I'm lucky, so thank you for extending the powerful gift of friendship to me and I thank you for that. Uh, So Bob Hastings thanks for joining us on this episode of Edge. Thank you Stephen it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today you can follow Dr Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr Stephen Brown 1. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.